You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Yeah, I want to say welcome to you. Probably uh, just like Elliot said earlier, uh, it's your first time. Just encourage you to make your presence known. And one of the easiest ways to do that is that we'd love to meet you and talk with you and get a face with the name. You can go back to the, um, in the atrium, there's a blue start here sign. And one of our pastors or one of our staff members will be there. And they would love to uh, just, just get a face with the name and get to know you. But man, we're so thankful that you've joined us here uh, today. And so if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to go to Titus chapter 1. Titus is a little bitty book. It's only three chapters. It's got a little over a thousand words. And so if you get to 1 Timothy, you get to 2 Timothy, and then you're in Titus, you get to Revelation, you need to go left. Uh, if you're in Genesis, keep going, all right? Keep going right, all right? Um, so we're going to be in that passage of Scripture, kind of finishing up chapter one here. And so before we dive into that, uh, just a reminder, as we do every single week, uh, one of the ways that we practice uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives is how we give. And so we don't want to be a, a, a people that worship money. We want to be a people that use money to advance the kingdom of God here. And through your giving, you can help do that. And so there are multiple ways that you can give online, uh, places on our app, as well as our website. If you brought a check or money or a physical gift, uh, you can drop that off in the wooden boxes that are attached to the wall as you leave today. All right. So let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. So starting in verse 5, and we'll read down to verse 16. So the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them they are ruining entire households by teaching that what they should not in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, Father. We thank you for your faithfulness. Get us through another week. And we're um, 
blessed to, to be with God's people, your people, God, to where we can think, reflect, sing about the wonders of your grace. And so God, just help us right now as we work through this passage of Scripture. Speak to us. Uh, help us to hear and do what you're commanding from this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're comfortable, you're more than welcome to take off your, your mask. We just ask that you put that back on when we get ready to uh, take communion here in a few minutes. And so here's all I want to do this morning. I, I want to, um, to kind of have like three movements. So I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about specifically the emphasis uh, that Paul puts on elders and pastors. What is he, what's his main emphasis here? And I want to lean into that emphasis because it serves the whole of the book for, for a purpose there. And then I want to transition into the second movement. And the second movement, I just want to spend a little bit of time, if you guys will allow me, to dispel some myths that we have about pastors. Uh, so there are a handful of things that, as, we, as I work through this past this week, that I just feel like would be good for us. Uh, to be reminded of, or maybe these are things that you already know, uh, some, you know, excuse the, the goofiness, do some myth busting. Amen? All right, there you go. I know that shows uh, it doesn't exist anymore. But I just want to kind of dispel some myths that I feel like sometimes we come in thinking, and there are times when we as a pastoral team sort of feel. And so, like, to just lay my cards on the table a little bit, um, I, I maybe uh, like exposing a little bit, like, of what I struggle with. And this is not a time of, pity party, oh, poor Lyle, blah, blah, blah. I'm just trying to kind of let you in my world a little bit. It's almost like I'm, you know, you know pulling back the curtains and say, okay, this is, this is kind of what goes on in me. And, and, and I, I think I can speak for all of our pastors. They would resonate with some of what I'm saying. So that second movement, third movement is just more of a, a couple exhortations, maybe three, depending on time, right? <laughs> uh, I don't want to, because that sounds like a lot and I'll, I'll work through these really quickly, but uh, at least two kind of exhortations that uh, I want to encourage you as a church uh, to hear and respond to in light of, of what we're seeing from this text. All right. So I, I um, as most of you know, I, I, I run for exercise, for stress relief, to keep my sanity, right? All three of those are the case. I don't know if I run for fun. It, it, sometimes it's enjoyable, right? Sometimes it is. Uh, there's a lot of mornings, especially right now when it's still kind of cold and and dark, it's, it's not as enjoyable. I'm a little nervous about getting hit by cars. And so, uh, but eventually it's gonna get into the enjoyable season here soon. Amen, looking forward to that. I think this week might be a good week for, for running. And so when I do run, I listen to podcasts. Uh, sometimes I'll listen to music because I need something to kind of warm my soul. Sometimes listening to podcasts can make me more annoyed than be helpful. Uh, and, but what I enjoy, when I do enjoy listening to some podcasts, it's usually an interview. So there's someone that, intrigues me and they're doing an interview with him. I listen to Kerry Newhoff as a podcast. Sometimes he kind of can annoy me and, and drive me crazy, but I think he means well and, and he always has good guests on here. So I don't, that may sound bad. I don't, he's a great guy. I'm sure he's a follower of Jesus. He lives in Canada. I don't know, maybe that's what's, moving on. It doesn't matter. He has some really, really awesome guests sometimes and I really enjoy the way he interviews them, that kind of stuff. So this past week or this may have happened a few months ago. I don't listen to him every week, obviously. Uh, he interviewed a, uh, a, a guy from Chick-fil-A. He retired from Chick-fil-A. This is, his name's Mark Sawyer. And he, um, Sawyer, I think, is not Sawyer, Sawyer. He spent 37 years uh, at Chick-fil-A, was kind of in, in the beginning stages of Chick-fil-A's prominence and all that kind of stuff. Started there when he was 21 years old, fresh out of college with a mar marketing degree, degree. And he served 
within the marketing firm was one of the ones that came up with the whole cow campaign that we so enjoy and all that kind of wonderful stuff. So uh, fascinating interview. I always love to hear about how people learn to lead and what they value and all that kind of stuff. But the first part of this interview is what intrigued me. And it's not anything new. It's not like while I'm running, listening to this, I'm going, oh, I've never heard of this before. It's just a really good reminder. Um, he, was, he was asked to say, to share like his insights or, or advice to someone that's 21 or 22, freshly coming out of college, and you're trying to find a job uh, at a specific company, which is, you know, helpful for me. I actually sent it to my oldest son, who's getting ready to graduate college here in about two and a half weeks, which is like weird to even say that. It's really like I'm, I'm entering a whole nother level of parenting and a whole nother level of feeling old. Amen. So there we go. Um, but I actually sent it to him because I thought what he had to say here is really helpful. He had several things here. But one of the things that just uh, caught my attention and is pertinent within the text today is that he kind of said, hey, before you say yes to a job, because it's not just about what you're doing or how much you're going to make. You know, it's usually kind of what the first thing that most of us think about when we're getting out of college is like, I've got debt. I want to get rid of the debt as fast as possible. Or if I don't have debt, then I want to go and make as much money as fast as possible, whatever it is. What's my salary going to be? And he was saying that that's just probably not a really helpful question. In fact, I would encourage you to think about what kind of leader you want to become. Like spend some time thinking about and writing it down what kind of leader you want to become because Whoever you place yourself under as a leader is the picture of the future you. Or as we have heard before, we become like those we surround ourselves with for better or for worse. If you grew up in church and you were part of youth ministry, you probably heard this from your youth minister. Or if I was your youth minister, I probably said this to you. Jeff, maybe, maybe not. You probably don't remember even... 90% of the things I said, amen. Uh, Jeff Collier was in my student ministry a long, time, a long, long time ago. So you show me your friends and I will show you your, yeah, future. And it's even true as adults, isn't it? It isn't like you graduate from there, right? And so this is, I think most of us would say that in the marketplace, like we get this. Like you want to be, selective and who you're kind of submitting yourself under because depending on who that is could be a picture of the future you and how you lead in whatever capacity you lead in the marketplace. We see this in relationships and friendships. The friends you surround yourself with is a picture of the future you. We see this all throughout the book of Proverbs and talking about wisdom and how you select friends and who you're spending time with and who you choose not to spend time with. I would also add to this, if this is true within the marketplace, if this is true within relationships, this is also true within the church. For better or for worse, your church will become like your leaders. And it's not like coincidental that after Paul kind of helps us see what he's after in this book, and if you missed last week, Basically, what I believe Paul is after in the book of Titus is it's kind of like his missionary strategy. So Paul's not just satisfied with, you know, having these house churches being planted in Crete. He has a, a vision and a desire to see the people in Crete reach with the gospel. And one of the primary means by which that's going to happen is when the community of God begins to live into this beautiful life that Jesus has for us. 
We're not living up to, we're living into. This is who we already are in Christ. And so we want to be a people who are living into this reality, not just for ourselves, but so that the people in the surrounding community can get a taste, a glimpse of how imperfect of that one may be, but a, but a glimpse, a taste of how Jesus would feel if you were around him. And this is the means by which Paul is helping Ty to see you're going to reach the people in Crete. You're going to create a, a community of people who are going to live counterculturally. They're going to have different values. They're going to have different ethics. They're going to have different morals. Not so that they can have a relationship with Jesus. Not so that they can have brownie points with God. Not so that they can get God to answer all their prayers. That's called prosperity gospel, right? That's not what we're after. We do this because this is who we already are. And to live as a full, whole, thriving human being is one who is living under the reign and rule of Jesus. That's living by a different set of values than what this world lives by. And when that happens, you become kind of like a billboard for Jesus. So if that's going to happen in the community of God's people, the church, then it starts with me. And the plurality of pastors that you have at this church. That's why Paul starts in verse 5. First thing you're going to do, Titus, is you're going to appoint elders, pastors in every town in all these house churches. Because I want the community of God's people to live in a different way. And you need leaders who are showing this example. And you'll notice, and this is what I want to do. I just want to kind of show you what he emphasizes about these leaders. And what he de-emphasizes, right? There's something about who these elders are to be that needs to be kind of like, once again shown its proper weight in the, in, the, in the context of the church here. So I just want to walk through these, walk through all these kind of characteristics and qualities that an elder is to be, because we want this to be embodied within the church, because we want people to know who Jesus is. You follow in the, the kind of flow here that Paul has given to us. So it starts off in verse 6. He says this, an elder must be blameless. And so you see this repeated twice in and blameless, maybe some of your translations may be overbearing, or not overbearing, I'm sorry, like above reproach. That's what another translation. So I would say this is kind of like an umbrella qualification here in the sense that when he says an elder must be blameless, all the other qualifications or, or, or the descriptions of what an elder should be kind of flesh out what it means to be blameless. Doesn't mean they're sinless, amen, right? Doesn't mean they're perfect at all. It just means that that there's nothing in their character and their conduct that would bring a consistent reproach against the message of Jesus Christ. Or another way I've put this is that if your neighbor found out that you were a pastor, they wouldn't be shocked. Right? They're like, I don't know. You're a jerk. I never would have thought <laughs> you would be a pastor. What in the world? I don't think I'm going to your church because I don't like you. Right? I, that's kind of what it means to, to not be blameless or, or to be one that is blameless here. And then he goes on and talks about the family. And the reason why I think Paul starts with the family is because that's where 
Christianity is lived out, right? It is. It's easy to be a Christian here. Amen? For any follower of Christ, we can fake it. We can smile. I can be kind to you for an hour and a half. But where it's really lived out is in the context of the home. Because that's where you get frustrated, angry, lose your patience, scream, yell, all those wonderful things that happen in the context of a home. Amen? And they happen in the context of a pastor's home, right? So look what he says here. He's a husband of one wife. It doesn't mean that he's not divorced or he can't be remarried. But what Paul is emphasizing here is faithfulness within marriage. He's a one-woman man. One woman has my attention, the affection, and love. He does not wander in any way. Our wives are the, the standard of our, our beauty here as, as a pastor here. He's a one-woman man. His children are, what he says there, are what? Faithful, right? Some translations say they are believers. I don't love that translation. I think faithful is a better translation here because I don't believe Paul is saying that every pastor's kids must be a Christian. And if they're not a Christian, then you disqualify yourself as a pastor. And here's why. I can't save my kids. I can't. God saves them. I don't have some kind of special in that no one else has because I'm a pastor. What I, what I long to do is not only share the gospel with my kids, but live it in front of them to where they are drawn to the beauty of Jesus. But I can't make that happen. But what I think Paul is trying to say here, generally speaking, if a dad is present and faithfully present, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and he's cultivating a, as best he can by the grace of God a healthy home life, then hopefully, in general, this will be the fruit of the lives of their children. They will, be, they will be faithful. They're not going to be drawn to wildness or rebellion. I don't think he's saying, hey, they all have to be Christians here, but, but the way that you operate your home, you'll have children that, that hopefully, Lord willing, will follow and be believers in Christ. It goes on in verse 7 and continues these, this character of what an elder should be, an overseer, it's same person here, not a different category. As an overseer of God's household, here's our word again, he must be blameless. Then he goes on, kind of explaining more of this. Not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. So look, look, look at these, just work through these real fast here. An elder is not to be one who is arrogant or overbearing. He's not to use his leadership to lord it over people or to push his own agenda, not to have stubbornness or an arrogance about him. He's not a hot-tempered person. An elder doesn't need to be flying off the handle at McDonald's because they put onions on his cheeseburger and throws it back at them. Like, that's not what you want your pastor. Your pastor shouldn't be regularly flipping off someone that cuts them off and, you know, down the highway or whatever it is. Like, that's not what you want from your pastor. They're not easily prone to anger. They're patient. They're not quick to irritability. They're not an excessive drinker. If they choose to drink, they drink in moderation. If they choose to enjoy a margarita, it's not sinful for them, right? But maybe six is, amen? And depending on who you are, maybe two. <laughs> amen, right? Not a bully. I love that translation. I think some of you all might have a translation that says not violent. Anybody got that translation? That might be the English Standard 
version. It's interesting. Like when I read that, I'm going, does that really need to be here? Because the, the literal language there when it says not bully or not violent is to not be a striker. <laughs> so in essence, man, like pastors shouldn't be known for getting into fist fights. Amen? Right? <laughs> and yes, that sometimes is a temptation with <laughs> members. So, and I love you all very much, but, uh, but that would be really weird to see me in a big fist fight out in the parking lot on a Sunday morning. I, I don't know. They're to be hospitable. The emphasis here is not that the pastor's home is a revolving door, but that they love strangers. They're a welcoming presence because Jesus is a welcoming presence and a friend of sinners. Their internal world, they love what is good. They're sensible. They're righteous. They're holy. They're self-controlled. Simply put, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, He is a man who is Spirit-controlled, therefore has self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. He is one who pursues that which is good and righteous. And so look, guys, look. What is Paul emphasizing here? What is he putting a lot of weight to? Notice that he does not talk once about skill. And when he does talk about skill or competency, it comes in verse 9, and it's only one kind of phrase there that are able to teach. Like, and that's an important part of an elder's job, that they're able to teach in such a way where people can understand healthy, sound doctrine and refute those that are coming in and, and giving us correct, uh, incorrect doctrine. But, but notice that the emphasis is not on their competency. It's not on their skill set. The emphasis is on their character who they are when they're not present with you, who they are when they're in the privacy of their own home. This is the, the character that, that look, guys, I, I get it. All of us know this, but we need to be reminded of this because we swim in a culture that values skill, efficiency, high-capacity leader, and all of those are really important. I'm not trying to downplay any of that. But when you see Paul come, that's not what's emphasized. I want men of character who are not arrogant, who are blameless, not, not quick to fly off the handle, who embody the message of Jesus, yes, imperfectly, that's what I want, men of character, who they are. That when you squeeze them, what oozes out is not anger and irritability, but patience, love, kindness, goodness, self-control. Because if you want to have a community of people, the church that has an impact on a watching world, and you want their presence to be like that, then you better make sure you have pastors who live that out. And even when Paul talks about these kind of corrupt leaders that have already kind of infiltrated these house churches, notice what he emphasizes. And I'm going to come back next week and talk about the importance of teaching, kind of skipping over a little bit here. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't emphasize the content of what they're saying. He doesn't give us like bullet points of what the false teachers are saying. He actually talks about the content of their character. And he's going, look, this is not who you're to be. This is who you're to be, not this. I mean, follow me. Look what he says here in verse, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people. They're full of 
empty talk. Rebellious or reject authority, full of empty talk. What they say has absolutely no weight because their life does not match up with what they're saying. They're deceptive. They're, they're liars. He goes on in verse 11. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't. Why? Why do they do that? What's their motive? Well, their motive is to get more money, dishonestly. So they're using their platform, this, this position as a leader, in order to get what they really want, which is money or reputation or power. You see it even in verse 12 when he talks about the reputation of the Cretans is the exact reputation of these false, false leaders. They're, they're liars. They're brute beasts. They're, they're gluttonous. They're, you know, their, their character represents the very character that's represented within Cretan culture. And he goes on and lands that plane in verse 16 when he says this, they claim to know God, but they deny him how? Not just by what they say, but how? By their works. By how they live, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so, guys, look, look. I mean, this is in contrast to even in Crete culture. It's in contrast to our culture. What Paul is emphasizing here when it comes to us selecting elders is not their skill. Not necessarily their, their gifting. Not their competency. And I'll say it again, those things are really important. Like all of our elders, including me, we're always wanting to sharpen our skills. We're always wanting to grow in our craft. We're always wanting to do, you know, grow in our own competency. I mean, even this week, I've, I bought a book called How to Be a Great Boss. Why? Because, because I manage a staff team here. And unfortunately, you go to seminary and they don't talk to you about any of that for crying out loud. And that's why pastors walk into churches and they're stinking train wreck. They don't know how to be a boss. And I'm not saying I know how to be one. That's why I got a book. Amen. Right. I'm wanting to grow in this skill and grow in this craft. But what trumps all of that is my character. Who I am. And who these men are. And that's where Paul is laying the emphasis. Eugene Peterson says it like this. Titus is looking not for someone who can do something spectacular, but for someone who is something regardless of whether anyone notices. That's what I want for me and it's what I want for our men that lead this church. He goes on. And says this is a little bit of a longer quote in his book, Unnecessary Pastor. He says this, as a general rule, and selecting leaders in your congregation, go for the little people, the ordinary people, the unimpressive people. They are not as apt to have been corrupted by the world's functionalism. They are less apt to be identified by their job descriptions. Their character formation is more likely to be mature, not necessarily, of course, but more likely. Look for the poor in spirit. Learn to recognize the sphere of leadership, not among those who excite admiration, who energetically get, their, get things done, who become advertisements for the vigor of our congregations. Those kind of, of leadership are useful, and I will even add to this, are needed to be sure and we are grateful for them. But when it comes to developing a community that is attractive presence of Jesus in a lost world, we need a few souls in whom love is gently at work covering a multitude of sins. 
So if the main point from last week was simply this, that our presence, our faithful, loving presence really matters in your community, which it does, then therefore, if we're going to be that, then the character of your pastors really matters. And that's where we will continue, we have and will continue to always put the weight in emphasis. Not what they can get done, but who are they? Who are they? So in light of that, if you guys will give me the permission to do this, I want to kind of bring four myths uh, that are coming from this text, I would say, as well as um, stuff that's in me, okay? So, and I will use we and I interchangeably because I did not sit down with all my guys and say, hey, do you feel like this? Does this kind of like resonate with you? I'm assuming that they probably would say, yeah, this, I'm, I'm with you. So I will be using we and I there, um, knowing that I generally think that these guys probably would agree with me. Uh, but I want to make sure this is also coming from me too, all right? So in light of what we just heard here from Paul, myth number one, I want to dispel and do away with. Pastors are super spiritual giants who never struggle, doubt, or sin. Myth number one. I am not who you think I am. And quite honestly, that's hard to even say right now. Because here's the reality, all right? And this isn't, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm not trying to make you feel guilt about this. I'm just kind of stating reality. Every single one of you come in here with an idealized version of Lyle or any of our pastors. Every single one of you have an idealized version of who you think I am beyond what you experience from me on Sundays. And I feel that every week, every single week. I asked one of my spiritual leaders and counselors for a number of years, like, why in the world do I feel so exhausted on Sunday? Yes, I get it, man. We're preaching two Sundays. We're preaching two Sundays, preaching two sermons. We're having interactions and conversations with tons of people, and there is a lot of physical energy, emotional and spiritual energy that gets sapped out. But one of the things that he said to me that I never, ever thought about is this, is that Lyle, when you show up on Sundays, you are carrying everyone's idealized version of you. And you know that it is not what they think. It is not. Now look, I, like I'm not trying to excuse anything at all. And you can sit down with my boys and ask them maybe individually. I work hard to make sure what they experience from their dad in this pulpit is the same dad they experience in the home. I don't want them to roll in here and go, hmm, I'm not sure if that's the same dude, right? <laughs> that I deal with week in and week out. So I, I, I try to have consistency here with my kids. And at the same time, I fail, I blow it, I sin against them, and there is a, 
a gap that all of us, and I can speak for all of our elders, that we know is there between who we are in Christ and who we are functionally, right? There is a gap there. And for some of us in this room, you have this idealized version of what you think my quiet time is. I'm here to tell you it's nothing like you think it is, all right? It's probably more like what you experience, amen? You have an idealized version of how you think I handle my kids week, day in and day out. Probably not at all what you think it is. You have an idealized version of how my prayer life is. You have an idealized version of how I work with my wife and care for her. Like, guys, look, I'm just telling you, it is not what you think it is. I am a flawed human being, just like all of our pastors are. We are flawed, we are broken, we are limited. And at the same time, we are beautiful beings because we are in Christ who daily need the grace of Jesus Christ, just like you do. And so all I'm trying to do here, I'm not trying to make excuses for the gap that is present in my life and all of our pastors. I'm just trying to name it and not hide from it. Because where pastors get in trouble is not only when they hide from this gap that they feel, is when they begin to believe in the idealized version that their congregation has of them. And so just like you have an accuser whose name is the devil, so do I. And every single Sunday when I'm working through my notes here, I am hearing that accuser every single Sunday. You're not living up to that. You're not living up to that. Why in the world are you talking about this? Because you're not doing that. And that's why I say almost weekly, I need to sit down on the front row here and sort of listen to myself because I'm not doing what I'm telling myself to do, right? We're not super spiritual giants who never struggle doubt or sin. We are normal, ordinary human beings who are flawed, broken, limited, and saved by the grace of God who are striving and working to be who Paul is outlining for elders to be. Not perfect, but we're striving to be this. Myth number two. We only have one pastor and the rest are JV pastors. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. The reality is I think some of us really think that. I mean, I've heard it from you. Now, you're my pastor, Lyle. I know what you're trying to say there. I hear you're trying to be nice and kind. But I'm not your pastor. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. And if you'll notice, when Paul said, go and appoint elders, right? I'm not great in English. And I know some of you all are English majors have been so kind and gracious to me as I butcher words up here, as I say things that I'm not supposed to say up here, as I mix my pronouns and use you and me and I and however you're supposed to do it. I even make up words up here. You've been so gracious to me in that area, all right? But I do know this. I do know this. And when you have an S at the end of a word, it's, it's plural. And at the same time, I get that there's a difference. There is a leader amongst leaders. I get that. I get that if this little 
church goes south, things don't start working out real well, you're probably not going to go to Eddie or Ty and say, hey, guys, you need to resign as a pastor, right? No, you're going to come to me, and you're going to hold me accountable to that. I get that, and I carry that weight, and I step into that. And at the same time, please hear me, it's a team of men who are doing this together. So if one of our other pastors shows up at your hospital bed, guess what? You got visited by a pastor. If one of our pastors follow up with you and sit down with you and talk through some issues that's going on in your world, you got followed up by a pastor. I'm not the only pastor here. We are a plurality. I am one of the pastors in this community that we call the church here at Sojourn J-Town. And I'm thankful to have that. And so should you, because these men hold me accountable. They keep my doctrine in check and they keep my life in check. It is for your good and for my good that we have a plurality of men that are pastoring that church, not just one. We're all pastors. There's not the senior pastor and then the JV. We're all pastors. Myth number three. Pastors' kids should be more spiritually mature than other kids and or, right? Because this is the other side of it. Pastors' kids are always more rebellious than other kids. And that's just a myth. And I may have heard a little comment from one of my boys. <laughs> On the front here. Their kids is what they are, period. They struggle, they sin, they disobey, they doubt. There may be seasons in life where they don't even know if they're a Christian, whether they believe this stuff or don't believe this stuff. We don't have any extra expectations on a kid, just because their dad is a pastor, they're kids. That's what they are. A couple months ago, I had an individual I talked to briefly out in the atrium. And a couple of my kids came up next to me. And the individual, I know they were just kind of being funny and teasing and uh, kind of being silly. He was new, never been here before. He said, oh, I, I thought maybe you were one of the pastor's kids. You seem to be a little, you know, not really paying attention, kind of slouching in your chair. He kind of made a fun joke about it. And in that moment, you know, like internally, I had to remember, don't be violent. <laughs> Amen. I can't get in a fist fight. <laughs> but as soon as he left, I turned to my son and said, you do not put that on yourself. You can lay down on the floor as far as I'm concerned. There's no extra expectation upon you because I'm your pastor. And here's the reality. Even though my kids don't voice this ever, I know they feel it. And I feel bad for them sometimes. That unfortunately, 
Their dad is a pastor. And you all know my kids' names. You do. And you're making assumptions about them. Judgments about them. All of you are. Because I do it. And there are days when I'm going, man, that's just absolutely unfair. And you have to kind of live in sort of a spotlight. And I think they would say this. I mean, I don't know. They might rebuke me later this afternoon, which is fine. But I have never told my kids to behave a certain way because I'm a pastor of a church. And I will never tell my kids to behave a certain way because I am a pastor of a church. If you expect that from my kids, I love you. I do. And I don't mean this mean, but this may not be the place for you. And if I, yeah, I'm okay with losing this job. I will never go to my kids and say, you need to shape up or I'm going to lose my job as a pastor. No, okay, lose my job. They're kids. They're kids. They struggle. They have difficulty. They sin. And we want to be careful to not create a culture in our church that puts undue pressure on them. It's absolutely unhealthy and could exasperate them and turn them off to Jesus and more importantly to, G, to, to the church. Or, I'm sorry, turn them off to the church and more importantly to Jesus. As a side note, man, you guys have been a great church to raise kids in, all right? Please hear me. Been here 10 years. You guys have been a phenomenal church and I thank you for that. But at the same time, just like we always need to be reminded of this, right? They're just kids. Myth number four. Pastors can be everywhere. Know everything. And fix anything. That's a myth. That's God. Amen? We can't meet every need. We can't meet with every person that we would like to. And we cannot fix every single problem that's in the church as well as in our lives. I'll say this about myself. I'm sure our pastors would say this also if they were up here. I will fail you. I will disappoint you. I will hurt you. I will not care for you as well as you should be cared for. I will miss when you go to the hospital. I will forget to call when I told you that I would call you. I will forget your name. That's why we did name tags before COVID happened for crying out loud. It's almost like God said, huh, not gonna happen. Bring a pandemic, drop those name tags. It's a piece of junk, right? But I will, I will forget your name. I will not pastor you in the way that you're envisioning me to pastor you. And I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm not. I want to be the chief repenter in this church. And so if I have failed you in any way like this or hurt you or disappointed you, I want to know so I can repent of that 
And at the same time, I'm trying to own my limits. I'm not God. Our pastors are not God. They can't be everywhere. They can't fix everything. And they can't know everything. I sat down and had lunch with a guy this week, and he was talking a little bit about some church history stuff. And it was really fascinating, really interesting. We were really having this dialogue. And the whole time while I'm sitting there, I had this little conversation inside me going, man, you should know that, Lyle. How in the world do you not know that? You should know that. How could you have forgotten about that? My goodness, you call your a pastor and you can't even remember that kind of stuff. It's like, that's this whole dialogue that I'm having in my head. And then at the end of the day, when I got down with lunch, I walked out and said basically to myself, shut the blank up. That's what I said inside of me. Shut up. I'm so sick and tired of you being around my table telling me what I should and should not do. The reality is, is I forget. I'm a human being. Yes, I studied all that stuff in seminary, but I'm not taking a test on it every single day. So why in the world should I know this? It's like, this is actually a really good conversation. Help me remember a lot of what I had forgotten for crying out loud. But there's this weird expectation that not coming from you primarily, but I put on myself that I've got to know something about everything. That's impossible. Some of the best things I can do for you is say, I don't know, but give me some time. So I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm not. I want to be a chief repenter, and I think all of our pastors would say the same thing. But what we are wanting to do primarily is to live into this, this beautiful life that Jesus has given to us. And we want to do a really, really good job of always putting Christ at the center. He's your Savior, not me. He will never fail you. He will never forget your name. Jesus will never call you Bud. Jesus will never call you, hey, friend, what is up? Jesus knows your name. He will care for you perfectly. Just as we sang a few minutes ago, in your darkest days, he is always with you. Yes, we as pastors are trying to live into that also by the grace of God and be that physical presence of Jesus but ultimately, our salvation and our hope and our care and our love is found in him, not in these men and not in me. So those are the four. I'll leave with two exhortations real fast. The first one is this. Will you please praise God for your elders? Cultivate a heart of thankfulness for them. I am so thankful for the men that God has placed in our church and God has raised up to be elders here. They are dear friends of mine and I love them deeply. And I would not want to do this without these group of men. I am so thankful for them. So not only do we, I want you to praise God for them and at times encourage them, give them a card, send them an email. Don't just complain to them. We we get that, right? We get there's a lot of holes here. Every once in a while, say thank you for the way you sacrifice for this body. So praise God for them. This is all one, sorry. And pray for us. Pray for your pastors and their children. I'll put them all up on a slide. If you want to take a picture of this, you can do that. If you want me to email this to you, 
You can send me an email. Go to jtown at sojournchurch.com and we can get this to you. But Zach and Caitlin Cochran, their son, William, Eddie and Kristen Evans, their precious children, Hannah, Nathan and Samuel, Jordan and Sharla Goings and their precious children, Ruby and Theo, Elliot and Julia. Why does it say Julie? I am so sorry, Julia. Man, please, once again, give me grace. There you go, make a... And here's the this, here's this silly thing about this. Yesterday afternoon, we had a membership class and I had to finish up sermon. And so I went to the rock to find all these names. So I'm making sure I'm spelling everybody's name right. I'm so sorry, Julia. I feel really bad right now, but thank you for your grace. Um, children, Paxson, Winna, Weston, and Keller. And I may have misspelled something there. Give me grace there. Tony and Annette Stanrod. Uh, their children, Bay, June, and Piper. Charles and Michelle St. Clair. Their children, Andrew, Natalie, and Ryan. Ty and Heidi Thorne. Their precious children, Riley, Lucy, and Finn. And then me and my wife, Kathy, and our children, Michael, Brian, Joseph, Conlon, and Davin. Please pray for us. Pray for us. These are the men that God has installed here to lead and shepherd this church. So we covet your prayers that God would guard our marriages and that he would protect our kids from the evil one. So you can leave that up there just for a few minutes, Trevor, so they can copy that down or take pictures. And the second one, and then I'm done. I want us to praise God and pray for the beautiful leaders who are not elders that are in our church. Because here's, I mean, this could be myth number five. The only people that can lead in the church are the elders. No, oh gosh, that's horrible. Oh my goodness. There's so many of you in this room who are way better leaders than I am, right? And so we wanna be a place to where we're, we're raising up men and specifically women to lead in large capacities within our congregation. The church, including our church, has not done a really good job of helping women see how they can lead and not just how they can lead, but how they can be equipped and trained and mobilized to where they can flourish, flourish in this community and lead out in large capacities. We've done a job of telling you what you can't do. Well, you can't be a pastor, but we can't, we've not done a really good job of telling women what they can do. And in fact, I would put before you the reason why that is the case is because most men are really insecure. And one of the character qualities with men, elders, pastors, is they're not to be arrogant. And so arrogance means that we can learn from women. And if we think we can't learn from women, then that means you're arrogant. So one of the things that we're trying to do and do a better job of is to provide clear spaces to say, hey, lead out here. You can lead out as a woman here. And some of the things that we've done, you don't know this because these are things that happen, you know, in, in meetings and stuff like that. Whenever we are doing any strategic planning or any vision for the life of this church, we just had two Friday night meetings over the course of a couple months here talking about discipleship and formation for our church and how we can lead that forward in the context of our community. Guys, look, it was not just with the group of men. No, that's stupid. That's the dumbest thing we can do. If all we have is a bunch of men in this room who are talking about how we're gonna do discipleship for the church and half of your church, there's not a representative of half your church is not in the room, 
that's stupid. That's, it's not just stupid, it's foolish. And so there are, there are women around that table that are not just there to give their presence, they're there to share their voice. And we want to hear their voice. Because I don't know what a woman needs in the area of discipleship and formation. And I need to humble myself as a pastor of this church and learn from women who know a lot more than I do and who can lead better than I can lead. And unfortunately, we as a church, holistically and even present here at J-Town, have done a terrible job. And we need to repent of the sin that we have done against women and saying, hey, your place is just to be quiet. Garbage. That is from the pits of hell. It's demonic. And that is not the church we want to be. Yes, we uphold that the office of pastor is for men. It's the way God has designed it. It's the way he brought order into the household. But it does not mean then therefore women cannot lead here. They can. And they need to be around the table when we're talking about vision and direction of our church. There's nothing in the Bible that says the only people that should be at those meetings are men. Garbage, right? That's craziness. No, I want their voice. And we're finding ways that we can continue to platform their voice within the context of our community because we want to praise God and pray for the leaders, men and women, who are not elders because they're leading in large capacities within the context of our church, and I want them to lead more. Now, sometimes I end abruptly, but we're going to have to end. It's 1227, so I'm going to pray for us, all right? Father, help us. Help us to be a community of people that show how beautiful Jesus is and help our pastors to be ones who lead the way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we take communion here, how we end our services for us to intentionally reflect upon the sacrifice that Christ made for us. So on the night that he's betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine like this and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which has been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so this is how we take communion here. We got four stations that are in the corners of our room here. Just encourage you to stand up, go to one of these stations and try to go in groups of two to four, whatever you feel comfortable with and allow the individual there to just say, hey, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you, and then go back to your seats and take your communion. If you're not a Christian, then our encouragement for you is not to take this meal, but man, we would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We always have people that are, at the little blue start here sign in the atrium that would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. So church, whenever you're ready to take communion, you can stand up and go to one of these stations. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.